Good morning. How are you? Merry Christmas. Yes, um, we figured out a very sneaky way. Figured out a very sneaky way where I could give you two messages on a Sunday morning. Did you notice? Just have John tape one of them and show it at the top, right? <coughs> you know, he even made me look brief and to the point. Did you notice? He started with he started with um, he started with 11 minutes of footage, right, John? 11 minutes of me rambling on and on and on. He ends up with four minutes using cool music, pictures, video, and graphics. And it's all really quite humbling and uh, maybe even outright distressing a bit because I'm sitting there here watching this that video with you this morning. I can't, think of, I can't even think of one single thing that he took out. And so if you do the math, if you do the math, that means seven of my 11 minutes were totally unnecessary. So this is humbling and distressing for me this morning. So here's my plan. Here's my plan. I'm thinking going forward, we'll have John just tape all of my sermons ahead of time. And then by the time he's done with it, we're on our way in 15 minutes and nobody has even missed anything. How about that for a plan? Okay, well, at least none of you said amen. That's good. 18 days until Christmas. Can you believe it? 18 days. Now, I'm sure this year that you're all done with your Christmas shopping because no one can afford to buy anything this year, right? And, and because you're saving up, I know you are. Many have talked to me about it. Praise God for you. You're saving up to give all you are able, yes, for your year-end gift to the church, right? Okay, now it's okay to say amen. Okay, good. So 18 days until Christmas, 18 days until Christmas, and I'm wondering this morning, other than, of course, your year-end gift, what else comes to mind when you think Christmas? I say Christmas, you say, Jesus, good for you. God bless you on your way. No. Um, Yes, God bless you, of course. I I say Christmas, do you think uh, Santa Claus... Christmas trees, the manger, shepherds and wise men, all the wonderful Christmas music. Oh, yes, that reminds me too. I know Brad hit it, but boy, don't even think about missing that service on December 21. Okay, the music that Steve Burns, the choir and the band have prepared. Wow, and guess what? Brad didn't mention it, but guess what? It was expensive for me, but Steve's actually going to let me say a few things too that day. Can you imagine? But I'm coming for the music, and you should bring a friend. In fact, go ahead, bring two. If you have two, hope you have more. Bring all your friends. It's going to be great. And some, uh, some might even say it's going to be special. Right, Steve? <laughs> Inside joke with Steve. He loves the word special. Well, actually he doesn't, but anyway. Ever since I went to Israel 11 years ago, when I think Christmas, one of the things I think about, oddly enough, at least maybe to some of you, is a shepherd's cave. A shepherd's cave. The Bible tells us that Mary placed her newborn baby in a manger, which indicates that Jesus was almost certainly born in a stable because that's where you would find a manger. And it also indicates that Jesus was born in a shepherd's cave because Bethlehem is shepherd's country and stables with their mangers were in caves. In fact, very early tradition, as early as 2nd century in the church, scholars outright say from that period, scholars outright say 
Jesus was born in a cave, you can read in their writings, because they knew that Bethlehem stables and mangers in particular were in shepherd's caves. You're looking at pictures. Some of them I just pasted together. I know it's a little bit confusing, but those are some pictures of actual shepherd's caves in Israel. Not exactly the cozy, wooden, straw-filled stables we're used to seeing this time of year, are they? Instead, cold, hard stone surroundings with, with sheep waste, deep even, on the floor. And when you walk in there and kick that up a bit, there's this, that smell that hangs in the air. Blackened walls and ceilings thick with soot from centuries of shepherd campfires in those caves. And even the manger itself, a cold, hard stone basin, or even just a depression chiseled out in the rock floor of the cave, they would call a manger that held water for the sheep. So one of the things I think about at Christmas is Shepherd's Cave, where Jesus was born. And and this year, that got me thinking even more, God doesn't do anything by accident. Did you know that? He doesn't do anything by accident. There's purpose and meaning in everything He does. And so I started wondering, well, why? Why did God have Jesus born in a cave? Could have had Him born anywhere. Why in a cave? Now, there are probably several reasons why, but I'd like to look at one possibility with you this morning. Now, I don't know for sure if this was on God's mind. Maybe it was. We'll ask Him one day. The reason I think maybe it was, at least, is because God's Word, Genesis through Revelation even tells us about many caves in the Bible. Caves are on God's mind in His Word. Go figure. And so maybe there's at least a picture, a connecting picture perhaps, that God thought we would catch or see or that God wants to emphasize by choosing a cave for the Savior of the world and choosing to tell us about it. Why tell us that detail that He was born in a manger, in a stable, in a cave. So, for the last couple of weeks, I've been on a cave hunt through Scripture. And here's what I found. The very first cave mentioned in the Bible is the cave where Lot and his daughters lived because they were afraid. And right off the bat, first instance use in the text, fear is something that is indeed associated with biblical caves. David, many of you remember, ends up hiding in caves several times, running for his life. He's in and out of caves a lot, running from Saul, running from the Philistines, running even once from his own son Absalom, who was trying to kill him. And at least twice when David is in a cave, he writes a psalm, Psalm 57 and Psalm 142, where where David cries out to God to save him from his enemies because he fears for his life. The prophet Obadiah. Obadiah hides a hundred prophets, 50 in one cave each. He hides a hundred prophets in two caves to escape Jezebel, who was trying to kill them. 
Elijah runs for his life from that same queen, and guess where he ends up? Take a wild guess. He ends up in a cave in Sinai. And the book of Hebrews tells us, tells us, tells us of those persecuted for their faith having to hide in caves from those trying to kill them. So, fear is one big picture. It's the atmosphere, if you will, of caves in the Bible. A cave says fear. A cave says, that's where I go when I'm running for my life. We'll talk a little bit more about fear during our Christmas Eve service, 5.30 on December 24. But a cave says fear. And I find myself wondering on cultural insights like this, how that's so different from how I would picture a cave. I mean, how many of you driving along I-70 into the mountains, you know, come across and see one of those caves up on the hill, right? Is your first inclination to think of that as a place of fear? You know, what do we think when we see the cave, most of us, I think? I mean, you know, you're thinking, where can I pull off? I'd go up there and see what's in that cave. Right? Not so much in the text. From its first instance with Lot, a cave is a fearful place. Second, biblical caves are also associated with death. This is a big one. Primarily because that's where they would bury everybody when they died became a cursed place of death. Genesis records Sarah and Abraham and the patriarchs being buried in caves. Caves were commonly used as tombs in the Bible. Lazarus comes out of a cave tomb when Jesus raises him from the dead. And Jesus, of course, Himself, His body was laid in a cave tomb after the crucifixion with a great stone rolled across the entrance. And so death is another picture associated with caves in the Bible. Biblical caves are places of fear and even death. Some might say you don't want to be caught dead in a cave. Three people thought it was funny. That's good. It's two more than usual. Then something else um, caught my attention while looking at all these biblical caves. One thing that they all had in common. And actually, this last one, this last one really isn't a separate third thing on the list. It's one of these overarching ones, I think. It's really a way to summarize or explain the fear and the pain and the death and the running for your life associated with caves. I mean, why were these people in caves fearful and in pain and lonely and in de- or maybe even dead in the first place? Why were they there experiencing fear or pain or death? When you start looking at these caves, how about this explanation? One of them at least. It's because in the Bible, caves are places that people go when they struggle with broken relationships and loss of community. Caves are lonely places for lonely people. In addition to all the caves just mentioned, one Bible story that immediately jumps to mind, and I'm curious if this is a surprise to you, is the story of Samson. You remember Samson? Big, strong guy with the long hair. 
Did you know that he spent some time alone in a cave? Or do we read over that detail as a meaningless setting, having nothing to do with God's theological point? Samson spent some time in a cave. It goes like this. One day, Samson takes a gift, a young goat. I don't know what you'd think of that gift today, but then it was a great gift. Someone showed up at your door today with a young Christmas goat? I don't know. Would you Say thank you and take the goat. Samson takes the gift of a young goat and he takes it over to his new wife in his in-law's house. And he gets there and he says, Hello, father-in-law. I'm here with this young goat. I'm going to go upstairs and find my wife. And his father-in-law says, No, Samson, you can't. And Samson is told that his wife has been sleeping with his friend. In fact, she's been given to his friend as his friend's wife. And right there, in my opinion, the moment Samson hears that gut-wrenching news, I think something breaks inside of the man. And he says things like, I'm going to get even. I'm going to get even with the Philistines, he says. And then he says, I am really going to hurt them. And so Samson then catches those 300 foxes, remember? Ties their tails together two by two with lit torches in the tail and sets those foxes loose to burn up the fields and orchards of the Philistines. And then, as always happens when we indulge vengeance, the other guy strikes back again. This time the Philistines fight fire with fire. They burn alive Samson's wife and father-in-law. And when Samson hears this, his downward spiral into the muck and mire of vengeance deepens. His desire for vengeance burns even hotter. He says to the Philistines, I will not stop until I get my vengeance, my revenge on you. And the Bible says Samson attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. And it's right after all of that But the Bible says quite quite simply that Samson went down and stayed in a cave. And can you imagine how he felt? Maybe his great hand still trembling from being wrapped around the neck of the last Philistine that he murdered. Maybe his head in his hand, wondering where it all went wrong. A picture of a man with broken relationships, certainly with his wife and friend. A picture of a man with no community, utterly alone in his cave. Even a picture of a man's dwindling relationship with God. And to emphasize the point of broken relationships and broken community, look what happens next. Even as Samson is sitting alone in his cave, his community shows up. 3,000 strong, 3,000 men of Judah come to the cave and they turn on him. Even as he's sitting there with his head in his hands, his own people reject him. 
they tell him, hey, Samson, knock it off with the Philistines. And what's more, we're here 3,000 strong to get you and turn you over to them. We're going to turn you over, Samson, in your cave. We're going to betray you to the Philistines. We're going to hand you over to the Philistines, Samson. And Samson's community is indeed utterly, profoundly broken. He has no one. So, fear, pain, loneliness, death, in the form of broken relationships and loss of community, are associated with caves in the Bible. Which brings us to Jesus. But not quite yet to Jesus placed in the manger. No, it brings us first, oddly enough, to Jesus in a place called Gethsemane. Did you know that the setting of Gethsemane is in or at least very near a huge cave? And even the word Gethsemane, did you know, shouts the word cave. You're looking at a picture of a very old oil press in Israel where the Israelites would take olives and squeeze the oil from them by bringing down great weight to press on those olives. And one thing about oil presses in Israel is that oil presses are always in caves because they had to be very careful with the temperature of the olives as the oil was being pressed by them. Say, okay, how does that put Jesus in or near a cave at Gethsemane? Good question. Here's the answer. Well, the Hebrew word or words for oil press is Gat Shemanim. Say Gat Shemanim. Gat Shemanim means oil press. But in English, we don't say Gat Shemanim. We say Gethsemane. He went to a place called Oil Press on the Mount of Olives. Boy, there must have been a big one there for those Jews to name the place that. He went to a place found in caves. And it's an incredible picture, really. Jesus, the one called the light of the world, in or near an oil press used for pressing olives for oil to light lamps. Even as He was being pressed and asked by the Father to bear the impossible weight of our sin on the cross. And to round out that picture, at least in Gethsemane, what did the biblical author tell us of Jesus while in a place called oil press, while being pressed with the weight of the cross? The Bible tells us that while in a place called oil press, drops of His own blood were pressed from Him. And is Jesus in or near that cave in Gethsemane because of broken relationships and broken community? Many of His own people had rejected Him. The leaders of His own people were at that moment orchestrating His death at the hands of Rome. Hmm. Kind of like Samson's own community handing Samson over to the Philistines. Hmm. Those closest to Jesus, his disciples, they still didn't fully understand him. Instead, they would soon all run away when they saw he wasn't going to fight. Not in the way they expected. They would soon all run away 
right after one of his own dear, beloved disciples, tell me Dean, Judas betrayed him. Jesus' three closest disciples couldn't even stay awake to watch while he prayed. They kept dozing off, remember? And perhaps his closest disciple of all, with some stiff competition from John, but perhaps his closest disciple of all, Peter, the leader at least of Team Tommy Dean, Team Disciple, He'd soon swear an oath to God that he didn't even know who Jesus was. Was Jesus in Gethsemane, in or near a cave, struggling with relationships and community? And P.S., what of Jesus' relationship with the Father? You say, hey, that relationship wasn't broken, it was strong and perfect, and you're right. But make no mistake, Jesus, in his humanity at least, is struggling in Gethsemane over what his father wants him to do. He agrees to do it willingly, wholeheartedly. Praise God. But he's pleading with God for another way, if at all possible, wrestling with God in his relationship to his father. And in any event, his father in heaven would soon turn his back on his son and soon turn his full, fierce, devastating wrath against sin and pour that cup of universal judgment all down Jesus' throat. And the God-man, Jesus, unbelievably, indescribably, impossibly, the God-man dies. Was Jesus in Gethsemane in or near a cave because of broken relationships? Was He there struggling Overbroken community? All of which is to say to you this morning, of course Jesus was born in a cave! Of course He was born in a cave! Because that's precisely what He came to fix! He came to rid the universe of fear and pain and loneliness and death and broken relationships. Broken relationships among us and our broken relationship with God. Of course Jesus was born in a cave because He came to rid the universe of caves. And one picture at least, leaping from the pages of God's amazing Word, is a God who picked, out of all the possible places for Jesus to be born, God picked a dark, smelly place known for fear, death, and broken community God takes that vulnerable little baby boy and puts Jesus right into the thick of it, right from the beginning, right under Herod's nose. It's as if God said, I'm going to pour out living water into that water trough, into that manger, right there in that cave. Hope will be born right there in a place of despair. And oh, my dear friends, we miss We risk missing that reality when we only make the manger scene a safe and tidy and cozy and comfortable place. It wasn't. It was bristling with danger. It was boiling with fear and pain and loneliness and broken community. 
Come on! No room in the inn for a pregnant teen about to give birth? You don't think there's something seriously wrong with the lack of community in that line? There was no room in the inn? Are you kidding me, Bethlehem? Why didn't somebody make room for her? This pregnant teen girl, this poor, had to be frightened, had to be exhausted girl. And there's no room for her? And God Himself is one of the most vulnerable things we can possibly imagine. God Himself, as a newborn baby, burst from a placenta dripping with blood and water. And oh, to hear that first fierce little intake of breath that He took. And to hear that first fierce little cry that night. A cry ringing yet today of hope and love and life. A cry echoing in defiance off those cave walls of fear and pain and loneliness and death and broken community. No wonder the angels sang. Glory to God. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace. Shalom to men on whom His favor rests. More on shalom next week. Please come. But no wonder the angels sang. No wonder the shepherds said, let's go see. No wonder the sages, the wise men came all that way. No wonder And no wonder the devil wanted him ruined and dead. Oh, can we still truly drink deeply of that wonder again this Christmas? Or in the midst of all the plenty and warmth As good as it is, have we forgotten how badly we need Him? Is it hopelessly lost, that need, that wonder, and all the hustle and bustle? Is the impact of Jesus' dangerous birth lost in making the manger a safe and cozy place? Jesus began and ended his life on earth in a cave. So we wouldn't have to stay in ours, hurting, lonely, afraid, or even dead. And I know this time of year especially, some of us, many of us, are in one of those caves. You're in one of those caves this morning. If you're in one of those caves this morning, if you're experiencing fear, pain, loneliness, or even death, if you're experiencing broken relationships, 
take hope. Listen. Through the hustle and bustle, through all of the noise, listen for the cry of that newborn baby all over again, that defiant cry in a place of despair. Because his cry and his cry alone saves you, saves us from our caves of despair and death. He's right there again in your cave, in my cave, in our cave this time with us. And he's offering you his hand. He's offering you his love as you sit there with your head in your hands, perhaps, in your cave. And he's offering you a way out. Come on. Come on out. He's offering you a way out of that cave and into the presence of a God who loves you beyond belief. Who loves you so much that he gave his son's life He gave his own life. So he could be with you forever and ever and ever and ever just loving on you. If we've lost... We've lost that sense of wonder or even our own need or that hope out of our caves. Remember again the baby born in a cave. Remember that the baby born to die in order to defeat fear, pain, and death once and for all came. And in that baby lies our only hope for redemption and resurrection. So we long for the baby in the cave, the baby born to die, and we long for the Savior who still lives today and who will and who is coming again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for sending your son to be born in the midst of our caves of fear and hunger and pain and loneliness and despair and frustration and discouragement and chaos and even death. Thank you for that defiant cry of that little one echoing off those walls of that cave, signaling hope, hope realized in his birth, death, resurrection, and ascension, that those things are one day to be no more forever and ever. And, oh, Father, thank you for offering that gift to us just because you love us. And with your head still bowed, I feel God moving in me to ask. Once in a while we need to ask. If everyone would keep their heads still bowed, I don't want to embarrass anyone.
if there is someone here today, if there's someone here today that you're in a cave and you don't know the way out, and you don't yet know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the one who right now even has his hand stretched out to you, asking you to take it, inviting you to walk with him out of your cave. If you'd like to accept that invitation of Jesus as your Lord and Savior to help you out of your caves of despair, would you just raise your hand and slip your hand in the air? I won't make you stand up. won't make you sing a solo. <laughs> but just uh, you feel led this morning just to raise your hand and say, I, thank you, I see one, two in the back. Praise God. Thank you. There's a young, a young girl. Anybody else? This morning you felt, you know what? I'd like to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior this morning. This Christmas time is going to mark a rebirth coming out of a cave. You've got your hand up and I can't see it. Wave it a bit until I do. Oh, there's someone right up front. Praise God. Anybody else? Anybody else this morning? There's another young lady right there. Praise God. There's someone over here. Praise God. He promises. He promises to be there with you in your cave and to find a way out. Anyone else this morning? Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for those who, by raising their hand, have signaled a point in the process of their salvation of saying, Oh, I do, I do, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Would you now, Father, come around in them and through them, anoint them with the presence of your Holy Spirit, and please, Father, send us, let us, make us available to them to love on them and to get to know them and to help them and to experience Jesus in and through them ourselves and to be blessed by these new brothers and sisters in the family of faith. Thank you, Father, for taking them, bringing them through their whole lives, perhaps, to this moment of decision of wanting you and you alone and your Son and salvation in His name. Father, we love you and we bless and praise you for this Christmas time once again. We pray for those in need in these hard economic times. May your church, our church here in Littleton, Colorado, be found to be an incredible witness of love and generosity to those who are in need. Use us to help them so that they may know there's a God, you, and they may know the love of your Son through us. We love you, and we ask all of this in the matchless name of Jesus, the Messiah, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.